I, I feel like a lot of where we're at today is not too dissimilar from the 1910s before World War One starts. All of the disenchantment with liberal modernity is already in the water before the world war starts. Right? You have all these anarchist bombings, SARS are being shot, presidents in America are being shot. Theodore Roosevelt's giving speeches saying we're literally on the gates of Armageddon. In the, the late 21st century, you see a move to the moral person is seen to be the person who is the victim in the situation. Victimhood confers moral authority. And my speculation, as why does this happen? Why does victimhood become um, such a key part of the way we think about politics today and also about like social action? Mm -hmm. And if you look at like the classic examples of kind of like woke agitation, for example, on like college campuses in America, this is, this is entirely what it is. It's much more of a no, no, we're going to appeal to university authorities. Yeah. We're going to create such a ruckus and show that we are in moral need that they'll be shamed or otherwise like morally impelled to act on our side and change whoa, 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 whoa. the rules. A yeah. lot of dysfunction in the modern world is people who do not feel like masters of their fate and their perception is accurate. They're not really. Yep. Most of the things yep. that decide their daily life are, are beyond their scope of control. The trouble though is the generations that come after. Okay. Because if you are one of these potential people who might have the capacity to solve a problem, but you're always waiting for the person higher up to make yeah. the decision. Yeah, yeah. Then when you eventually climb through the ranks and become the person who is tasked with solving that problem, or problems in general, you have no experience doing so. Welcome to Uncomfortable Collisions with Reality with me, Nicholas Gruen, and my friend and colleague, Peyton Bowman, and we have with us Tanner Greer, uh, who I will briefly introduce uh, and uh, then ask him him to introduce himself further if he thinks there are some further things to say. Um, I uh, Well, look, I'll do that now. Um, Tanner is, uh, I shall get my notes, Tanner is the director of the Centre for Strategic Translation, uh, and that uh, that involves translating Chinese material for the benefit of mainly Americans, but Westerners. Uh, the idea being that if we don't, that, that uh, we, we need to engage with, or at least understand the people who matter most to us outside of our own country, not uh, a subject that the United States, like most empires, hasn't been ex exemplary at, uh, in, at all on all occasions. Um, he also wrote an essay which I took a shine to and we'll talk about that. It's called A School of Strength and Character. So uh, Tanner, welcome to our little podcast. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be here. Yeah, that, that, that's all good. I run the, the think tank whose job is to help the West try to understand what is going on in the minds of the, the Communist Party of China. Um, and a lot of my public writing has to do with China. Um, but not all of it. Um, yeah. For a long, long time, I had a blog. I still do. It's called The Scholar Stage. And a lot of the uh, ideas that were in that essay were originally written on that blog in different points. I have maybe 12 or so pieces that kind of explore similar themes. And so when I'm not writing about China or Chinese history, I'm often writing about American history, American conservatism, um, and institutional 
history and what makes institutions work. Those are topics that fascinate me. And a lot of my work before I was directing a think tank was just as a writer, journalist, and public intellectual. And that was one of the themes I returned to quite often. And are you, and are you like I would describe myself as a kind of a not exactly a refugee of academia because I would never went into academia, but I realized that if I wanted to think for myself, academia was not necessarily the best place to do it. And so I had to make other plans. Is that any part of your background or thinking? Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I did the normal bachelor's degree, studied history, political science, that sort of stuff. And then I went out to Asia, lived there for five years in Taiwan and Beijing, that sort of things. Yeah. Um, and I never really entered the whole world of higher education, partially because uh, it didn't seem necessary, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and one of the benefits I have of kind of my path is I've been able to put my finger in many pies, so to speak, you know, write about things that are widely disparate um, and see the connection between these things. And it's yeah. kind of unfortunate that that is not as encouraged in academia as it as it could be. It is kind of unfortunate. I would have to agree with that. Um, okay, well, look, your essay, uh, and I will put a link to it in the show notes, it's in a fairly new online magazine called Palladium, uh, which often has excellent articles in it. This is one of them, one of the best, I think. It's called A School for Strength and Character. So I'm going to ask you, Tanner, to just... Don't tell us everything about it. We'll try and work our way through many of its uh, claims and themes. But uh, if you had to, if, if I gave you uh, 30 seconds or a minute to say something like what it's about or why you wrote it, why you think it, somebody needed to write it and w or why someone should read it, your time starts now. Uh, so a consistent theme that I've been investigating for five or six years now in different pieces is trying to understand um, what might be called the lack of institutional capacity in, in, in the West um, and different sources for this. And one of the conclusions I've come to is that in some ways we've socialized ourselves into having uh, less capacity than we should. Uh, the phrase that I keep coming back to, and I believe it appears in that article or some, some version of it, is that um, the current mode we get trained into is when we encounter a novel problem it's not yeah. the question we ask is not how do we act together to solve this problem but how do we get management on our side yeah that's right I'll, to, Living, from your from your essay the first instinct of the 19th century american was to ask how can we make this happen those raised inside the bureaucratic maze have been trained to ask a different question how do i get management to take my side Yes, that's right. Um, and so this piece, like I've, I've, I've actually written quite a bit on what it looks like now and why it looks like that now that we go to management. This piece was an attempt to try and investigate, well, okay, how did the world work before bureaucracy? What was the motive force in that world? Yeah. Um, and that's what that piece tries to lay out. It, it, it looks at 19th century America as a large industrial and like, large-scale polity that nevertheless mm. was not run through very large complex bureaucracies mm. and tries to investigate both the social conditions that allowed that to happen and then what kind of character formation that created in leaders rising up 
Um, and by implication, it's kind of a statement also on on the character formation of leaders today. Um, yep. But it mostly examines what the past looked like. Um, in, I mean, basically from 1820 through about 1910 is kind of the the range that that essay looks at. It's interesting. Um, one of my kind of uh, one of my thoughts is that. Uh, where if we're thinking about, say, Russia and Ukraine right now, we're focusing on the wrong world war. We're focusing on not... We spend our t- all our time thinking about Munich and the Second World War. And I don't actually mind that because I think that Putin ch- needs to be resisted. But we should also think about the First World War where we... Uh, and NATO looks to me exactly like the, all the all these alliances in the First World War that immediately produced... A world war out of out of some skirmishing in in Europe, um, and but more, but but the reason I was mentioning this is that I recent re- I recently read a book called Young Radicals. I don't know whether you're familiar with it by a guy called uh, Jeremy McCarter, who is uh, um, the who is a sort of business partner, collabor- a collaborator with. Um, Lin Manuel Miranda, the uh, author of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you familiar with that book? I'm not familiar with it. Forgive me. Yeah, well, it's a pretty interesting book, and it's about. I mean, you know, that you have the 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 long 19th century, and then bang, World War Two, World War One, just smashes everybody's expectations, uh, and just brings about a completely different world. And that, to me, I think is. Is a fast is something that is like you looking at nineteenth-century America, just looking at the transformations and looking at the ways people's deep expectations they just had to they just understood very quickly how they'd been dashed. And again, I think that's something similar. Something similar to that has happened in Westerners' understanding of democracy. I don't think that Westerners. I think Westerners would be if you introduced an American from Reagan's time or an Australian from uh, Bob Hooke's time, they'd be pretty surprised at how bad things have got as far as governing out, as far as governing ourselves is concerned and how suddenly a lot of that has happened. Anyway. You guys, sorry, you got to react. You, have you read the, the World of Yesterday? Uh, Stefan Zweig. Uh, yeah. It's funny you should mention it. I have, yes, yes. Because um, I has he was, them... close, he was a close friend of my grandmother. So there you go. Oh, hmm. how about that? We're wondering. Some of us, some of some of my cousins, wonder just how close a friend he was. Hmm. Anyway, go you on. Know, um, I just mentioned it because it has similar themes to to World War One as kind of the breaking point. I mean, things were yeah. already. I yeah. actually think that if we're going to make that comparison, and this is far afield from from yes, my is. essay, but it's not that unrelated to other things I've written about when I look at American conservatives in particular and their debates and stuff. Yeah. Um, we're, in my mind, I think a little bit, if I'm looking at the American perspective, I, I feel like a lot of where we're at today is not too dissimilar from the 1910s before World War One starts. Uh-huh. Um, all of the disenchantment with like liberal modernity um, is already in the water before the world 
war starts, right? You have all these anarchist bombings, SARS are being shot, presidents in America are being shot. You have socialist radicals doing things all over the world. Theodore Roosevelt's giving speeches saying we're literally on the gates of Armageddon. Um, people, I think, actually kind of forget how much. Yeah. And yeah. then there's yeah. all these like new stuff in the water, Freud and Darwin, things like that that seem to be eroding the uh, previous conception as individuals, as dignified souls that could then mm. communicate with each other and then lead mm. to perfection. So it's all it's already it's already starting to, to degrade. And then World War One like ends it because it's a very very conclusive demonstration that like the world that had been created wasn't leading somewhere good people are dying and the material basis of the previous world like the social structure the aristocracy and stuff is kind of completely wiped out in world war one and so in my mind uh if we're going to really pursue the analogy like this is why we don't want a war with china um (laughs) because I'm really, because, really in favor of trying to avoid wars. You could, you know, just this close to being a pacifist, you know. I'm not a pacifist at all, but by God, you want to go a long way to avoid a, a really big war. Well, yeah, I mean, so my, this is like, people say, oh, there's like, you know, fascism in the United States and stuff. I, I don't really think so, but I, I feel like, oh yeah, like if we lost the war of China, there would be. Um, that's that's kind of like the point. Like the, the stuff is in the water. Um, it, it's there. The ideas have emerged. All that's missing is a you know Great Depression or World War level crisis that would fundamentally break things apart and like unleash these things. That's my if we're gonna kind of make that take. I feel like yeah we're we're somewhere similar to where a lot of Europe and even America was in like 1910 um, intellectually. But that, that, that's kind of far afield from like it what is. It is. is in my essay. Yeah, um, it is. It is. Maybe if you want to, if you want to. After the after we've recorded, you might want to shoot me an email, and I'll put up another link to some of this stuff. If you've got a an, an essay, yeah, you might yeah, want to draw attention to it. I'd certainly be interested to read it. Uh, so uh, back to the essay, um, you talked about institutional capacity. I was going to, I was going to, I was thinking maybe we should define that a bit more. Um, certainly, America has i guess because america so valued its capability because america is such a can has such a can do self image uh you know trying to build infrastructure in america and noticing that it can't be done <laughs> has it comes as a pretty terrible shock um uh and also i mean i find it i i think of the gerontocracy of the late Soviet Union, and then I look at the United States, and I see Nancy Pelosi, and at least she's compass mentis. Uh, but then we have Diane Feinstein and Donald Trump and John and Joe Biden, and uh, it's a pretty ugly story. Uh, we, the next election, the next presidential election, will be between a, a two people whose average age is eighty. That's pretty extraordinary. Um, yeah. Sorry. So, do, do you want to say something? Yeah, no, like, I think if we're thinking about, like, okay, what does institutional capacity mean or whatever, um, there's different ways you could look at it. A very, very popular one, you know, among certain types is to do exactly what you said at the infrastructure, right? You know, I think uh, California just announced a few days ago that They've dropped $8 billion on a high-speed rail, which hasn't had a, a line of, of rail actually built yet. 
Um, and then it might be 90 billion more. It was originally supposed to cost 1 billion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's, a, that, that's an extreme, extreme statistic. It seems extraordinary that, you know, a country like China can just go and build these out the wazoo, whereas we have struggled to do even a very short, you know, yeah. railway line or a tunnel or something like that. Um, and so that that's one very dramatic example yep. that mm. I think people have a very intuitive understanding of. In some cases, it has unique drivers. There's a fair number of people who have written, for example, about what they call the vetoocracy in American life. That there's lots of uh, yeah. there's too many yeah. veto points for things getting done. Too many communities, yeah. too many stakeholders are given a voice, and that, that's a part of it. Um, but I think there's a whole another realm of explanation. And maybe a, a different example helps bring this out. Um, I think it's very instructive to compare the initial months of the 1919 uh, pandemic, the, the Spanish yeah. flu in America, with the coronavirus pandemic yeah. and, and how they, they responded. So um, when, when the pandemic started, I started reading some books about you know past pandemics and stuff just to get a, a sense of what was going on. One of the ones I yeah. read that was very interesting was a book by... Uh, What's her name? I think it's Nancy Bristow. Um, cool. And she describes how at each and every city in the country, um, within a week of there being a Spanish flu case in, in a city, you would have the creation of an emergency committee. Sometimes yep. either the state level, other times at the county or city, most of them were at the city. And on these emergency committees, you'd have representatives from the state and city health departments, um, from the um, Red Cross, the military, usually the churches involved, sometimes the largest businesses in said city, and then often a representative from the, the um, national health um, service that had those uniformed officers back in the day. And they would immediately, like, so, so, so within months of the starting, you have dozens of institutions set up across the country to try and manage Dude. the response in their own locality. Dude. These were created in a very bottom-up fashion. They were created with a whole host of leaders from different institutions. And then when the pandemic was over, they're all disbanded. Yeah. Something very, very similar had happened Dude. about the same time. Um, because this is World War One, we're talking about for the creation of war yeah. bonds. Almost the same people actually all got together and created war bond drives and in order to help fund the war. Again, very yep. bottom-up creation. Um, we'll, might have responded to central signals, but not, you know, in a in a big hierarchy, hierarchical sense. Yeah. If you contrast this to what happened in America, where yeah, for everywhere. the first three months, three sorry, months sorry, America, coronavirus pandemic, for the first yeah, three yeah, months, yeah. You, yeah. you had officials, both Democrats and Republicans, denying there was even a problem. Because um, they didn't want to deal with it. And then when they did happen, everything just kind of got pushed up to the, the federal government to deal with. Yeah. And it was often very, very incompetent. Yeah, it was not did a terrible political yeah. capacity. Yeah. Um, and you could look at, you know, the 1919 ones and say, okay, like, did they really succeed that much? They weren't that successful because they didn't have a good understanding of germ theory at the time. They couldn't see yeah, viruses yeah. under microscopes. So they, they weren't as successful as they could have been, um, except in terms of making sure there was nurses to care for people. Uh, many of whom died because of the, the way that, that disease affected young people. But it was very amazing to me the, to the, read this account of all these committees being set up almost spontaneously to yeah. solve a national problem and then like just at the same time watch America for months and months and months struggle to, to 
come up with any institutional response that was coherent at any level. It was an amazing failure at not just the federal level with Trump and the CDC, although it was a failure there, but also the state level, the local level. It was was a terrible indictment of American society in my mind. Yeah. We were not able to pull together and and act effectively. So so I remember... Now, I think Australia, well, different people will have different views. Australia probably, I think Australia did somewhat better, but there was a lot of luck involved. But but we made the same kinds of mistakes. And I remember that when the corona, when, when we decided to get serious about the coronavirus, our chief scientist called Brendan Murphy, uh, people said, well, shouldn't we be wearing masks? And he said, no, 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 don't wear masks. It's... Uh, not the you know he basically gave a bullshit answer uh, a public bullshit answer which he subsequently defended as bullshit because he was trying to protect the mask supply which is sort of bullshit in itself because if you wanted to protect the mask supply you would commandeer the mask supply you wouldn't just sort of try and bullshit people um and and i thought to myself i mean what's happening here is that there's an almost complete lack of people with some knowledge, it might be first aid knowledge, it might be much deeper medical knowledge, working out what to do and applying that knowledge and saying, we think you should do this. They were waiting for the CDC or the World Health Organization to come up with a ruling. So it was actually a bureaucratic response to the to the deployment of expertise. And that the experts at the top were careerists, and they were pretty awful at the way they did what they did. And the other thing that was quite extraordinary was that there were quite well-developed pandemic, uh, varying between countries, um, quite well-developed pandemic plans. Uh, in hindsight, I mean, in fact, there's a quite an amu- there's, there's some quite amusing stuff where. Um, there was, I think, Johns Hopkins had a an index. The way to get in the news these days, the way to uh, get coverage in the press is to come up with an index, and you have a rank of countries, and then everybody wants to. Then that turns it into news. And they had an index of pandemic readiness, and th- there was no correlation between their index and how well and how well people did. Uh, and the pandemic preparedness had been based on. Almost everyone had prepared for a flu, a flu epidemic, and it wasn't a flu. And it took about um, over a month before anyone in any country, any official in any country, said we'd better revise our plan based on the, what we know, which is that it's not a flu, it's, it's something different to that. And that was New Zealand. Uh, but it was an incredibly rare thing. And instead, you had these medical officials handing out, uh, making rules, which in a sense you want them to make the rules, but not showing any kind of uh, problem-solving reason in in the way that they conducted themselves. It's really interesting because uh, as a point of comparison, I, I live in Tokyo and, and to kind of put the cart before the horse, there are a lot of these kinds of committees that uh, I think you talk about in your article uh, that that existed in the 19th century in America, and they're still kind of operating in some ways in Japan. Uh, in fact, I'm, you know, I signed up to to read books at my daughter's school and ended up on a kind of committee where I had to have this meeting with all these other people in the, the PTA, 
we had meeting notes, uh, kind of a lot of formal structure to it. Um, uh, didn't have to take an oath to, to the reading group, fortunately, but you know, it had a lot of, uh, kind of like a lot of the structure of some of these old meetings. And there are a lot of these kinds of informal, I think committees being formed, neighborhood committees. Uh, I think for example, when there's a bear terrorizing a local community in Japan, there's usually a committee that's a, a group of local hunters, volunteer hunters, and police officers working together to shoot the bear. They don't just go out and shoot it themselves like in uh, on on Yellowstone or some TV show like that, you know what I mean? So, um, and I thought it was interesting because the reaction to the coronavirus pandemic here was, at some level, there was a lot of um, kind of misconduct at that at that federal at that uh, top national level in government, but there was also a lot of really kind of informal organizing. Um, you know, most famously, people are still kind of wearing masks around here. Uh, that's sort of voluntary, but there's also a sense in which. If a kid got sick at school or a parent got sick at school, each situation was viewed a little bit um, like, how do we solve this together as a community, as opposed to what do we, let's go report this to the the health department and get our instructions from them and then complain about them or <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, so I don't know if you know, you've spent a lot of time in East Asia. I don't know how much you know about Japan. It'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. But if not, it'd be, I think a good thing for us to talk about is how these 19th century organizations operated. And how they're different to modern one. In building institutional capacity, as we've talked about before. Yeah, well, let me, uh, like Nicholas, you were mentioning earlier this, like Australians, which I'm not, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the COVID situation or how it was managed in Australia. So I'm just going yeah. off of what, what you said, assuming that it was a, yeah. a true yeah. and accurate representation. But... Yes, um, the you you mentioned that you have all these people who potentially might have the capacity to solve problems who are waiting on the people who basically higher up to make yeah. decisions. Yeah. Um, and this is the there's a problem with this dynamic. Hierarchy and bureaucracy, in my mind, is an extremely useful tool for accomplishing large scale things. It can be an extremely powerful tool. The problem is what happens, and, and this is why like, like the people who invented bureaucracy, who were raised in the world before it, say for yeah. example, the Americans who kind of like won World War II and created up an entire you know, national security state, were extremely effective yeah. at using bureaucratic tools um, for whatever ends they chose. Yeah. The trouble though, is the generations that come after. Mm. Because if you are one of these potential people who might have the capacity to solve a problem, but you're always waiting for the person higher up to make yeah. the decision. Yeah. Yeah. Then when you eventually climb through the ranks and become the person who is tasked with solving that problem or problems in general, you have no experience doing so. And that's the essential, I think my argument about institutional capacity is that knowing how I sometimes describe it as cultures that know how to build, it requires a culture of problem solving at lower levels if you're ever yeah. going to train people who will be effective at doing it at higher yeah. levels yeah. and so that's my my i guess central indictment of i don't know the modern world in some ways is that people live so much under bureaucratic structures that deny them yeah. that agency yeah that once you actually do have leaders that matter they they they, they have no practical experience wielding agency yeah. um 19th century america was in this way very different um, yeah. They were very good at getting people to act as like independent agents 
um, sure. they would usually use the word 19th century. They would have just called it self-government. Usually that's what they would use to describe this phrase. Um, or sometimes they would use the word independency. Um, this was something that was inculcated very young. Starting perhaps even in grade school, if you're going to believe people like Alexis Tocqueville's, you know, observations on American kids and all these other 19th century um, yeah. visitors to the United States yeah. were very impressed with with how much agency even the children had in determining their own fates. Um, yeah, so we could, we could talk a bit more about that. That's one of the things I frame in the article is all these visitors. I read many, many books from, you know, yeah. people mostly yeah. from Europe coming to the United yeah. States in that time and their impressions of what made it. American life different. Um, well, could you could you talk a little bit about how? So I think people are familiar with the idea of a large organization still today that have these sort of individual chapters, right? Like good, uh, you could think good. of fraternities or sororities or some something like that. But um, uh, how do, how is that structure different from an organization that follows, let's say, uh, Peter Drucker's you know principles of management or something along these lines? Okay. Well, I think, I think we can even start a step earlier and see kind of how things are built up. Um, in 19th century America was a, a pioneer country, which meant that if you were to go and settle in Minnesota or Utah or my ancestors settled or wherever, um, you literally had to build every single institution yourself. If there was a police department, if there was a mayor's office, if there was a, a congregation for church, if there was a school board or a schoolhouse, it's because you yourself got together with a band of fellow citizens in that area and created that thing, be it physical <laughs> or institutional. Uh, this is why I describe them as a culture that builds in some ways, because they themselves were constantly building institutions in a way that I think modern Americans have very little experience with because we've just inherited everything. Um, and a lot of these institutions were of necessity on the local scale. They were, like you said, you know, like the PTA committee that's that's just... Although PTAs actually are a, a, a large membership organization of this structure, but they were they were built by people bottom-up um, to solve local problems locally. However, 19th century America wasn't limited to that. Yeah. It had a large number of those, and that was an important part of the story. Yeah. But they were also like many, many national organizations, um, the largest being the two major political parties um, that stretched across the country, some of which did very, very important things. I think in the essay, I mentioned the uh, committees for the Sanitary Commission in the Civil War. Yeah. was yeah. a yeah. chapter-based organization that helped provide medical care for the entire Union Army, um, independent of, of, of the government originally, and then eventually got funding from it. And these organizations worked in a pretty standard way. They were often patterned on each other. Um, by the way, a good book to read about this is Theta Scott Cole's um, Diminished Democracy, which is kind of a history of these organizations from their 19th century peak to their, their, their late 20th century um, fall. And the way chapter-based organizations work is, is is pretty simple. Each local locality will have its own chapter. Chapters are usually based geographically. Most chapters had elected leadership, elected at the local level. Um, 
And these organizations would pay dues to, to the central level, but most of the dues would cover activities at the, at the bottom. And at each level, you'd have things like, like the people who are at the very top of these organizations. So if it's like the, you know, Christian Temperance Union or something like that, which is whose goal was to get rid of alcohol consumption or reduce it. Yeah, the um, skull was either, prohibition. Right. Well, the, well, so they did the, it the, more than one way. They would either do it through prohibition yeah. or the other thing they would do is they go on these speaking tours and try to get people to kind of, you know, like make commitments to stop drinking and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the 1820s, they reduced the temperance movement as a whole. It was able to reduce uh, the amount of drinking that happened in America by eightfold between 1820 and uh, 1840. Oh my God. And that was without using uh, legal... Is this the same time? Is this the t- great, same time as the Great Awakening, or is that a bit earlier? Yes, it is. Um, yeah. And many, many of the Second Great Awakening people were core to this, like organizing, you know, explosion. This is also an uh, abolitionism and like anti-slavery organizing also comes out yeah. of the same intellectual social milieu. Yeah. Um, but the and the Christian and the Women's Christian Temperance Union is, is is a later version of that. It's founded a little bit later, but it's off of that same kind of initial foundation. And if you're one of those people, if you're the leader of that organization, your job is basically to constantly tour from locality to locality and train all these lower level leaders, tell them what's working in other places, hold big conferences where you grab all the people together and you talk with each other and stuff, and you might lay out national plans. If you are the leader, you're democratically elected by the leaders below you who are in in turn chosen by the people below them. And then the people below them are the the general membership. But by and large, it's very self-directed at the local level. You're able to have national coherence, yeah, but exactly. it's not a complete top-down hierarchy. It's almost really building from the bottom up. Yeah, exactly. It's a it, bottom-up hierarchy, and it's it's it's. I mean, I suppose all hierarchies are modular in a way, but it's it's modular in a sort of behavioral sense. Um, you know, the people who get elected are the people, typically, I imagine, who impress the people that they they've been elected from, and that's very different to the rules of a bureaucracy where people get a lot of power at the top and sound chaps, as we call them here, um, people who are known as a safe pair of hands. They don't have to be chaps. They can be chapettes. Uh, but they're, they're people who are, whose manner is reassuring. They mightn't be much good. They might be good. Uh, that's really not that important. Uh, what's important is just keeping people happy uh, and... Uh, that's the skill and the skill of appearing competent. These things are very highly regarded. And um, in, a, in Australia, they take you, in Australia, with a bit of luck, they take you all the way to the very top honour that we give out, which is called a companion of the Order of Australia. But um, usually with some other conspicuous uh, accomplishment, but not always. Um, and uh, it's quite different. The, 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 the the organisations you describe, I think, the one can imagine the um, the ethos of them is very different. And you have a nice expression, which I'm going to try and find if I can find it quickly, but I'm not sure that I can. It's a two-word expression, just a summary. Oh, lodge democracy, you call it. Um, I don't know whether you want to say that's exactly what you're talking about, but that term that term turns up, um, and that was it's that idea. Because I've been thinking a lot about democracy, it's that idea that it seemed to me, well, there was a lot of we were thinking in a similar kind of way, even if we may mm-hmm. not end up think we may not end up thinking in the same way, but we're thinking in along similar lines. Well, what I think is key here 
it's not just the bottom upness of these organizations um because not all of the organizations of the time were that bottom up some of them did have more top-down selection um although most of them were bottom up elected but what what really i think distinguished them from a lot of modern organizations is the extent to which local units were given autonomy um if you were in charge of the local temperance union or the local Elks Lodge or whatever it might be, uh, most of your guys' activities were chosen and directed at your level. And ultimately, there was not a lot of ways to like force somebody lower down to do it. And that's important because like we're talking about democracy. Um, this is a word whose meaning, I think, has significantly shifted, especially in the American context, from the 19th century to now. Um, in the 19th century, democracy meant, well, self-government. It meant a large number of people actively engaged in tasks yep. of governing or managing the, like their lives collectively. Yep. This doesn't happen very much today. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of politics say, I mean, people vote. But that's one decision every yep. so many yep. years. If it's something like a national election, that's at a very, very far remove. Your individual voice and actions don't matter very much. Yep. Whereas if you're doing something like your local Elk yep. Lodge's you know, charity event for the widows in the town, and you're trying to solve that problem yourself, um, you are actively engaged in all the tasks of, of, of self-government. Yep. Building coalitions, finding solutions, and... These organizations actually in, in the American context would actually advertise that. They would say, we are, we are like schools for democracy in some ways. If you join even a, even a social club like the Elks or Rotary or something like that, part of the reason you would join that is because you would gain the skills of learning how to talk to people, learning how to do Robert's Rules of Orders, you know, and yep. learn how to do minutes and learn how to manage budgets, learn how to convince people to do what you want. All these like basic skills of effective human decision making as groups of people yeah would be trained in these and then you could then take those skills on to to bigger and, and broader problems and they explicitly called themselves that describe themselves that way promoted themselves in such yeah. terms even when yeah. they were really just purely social clubs yeah and and this is very different um, there's lots yeah. of reasons for this change some of them legal i think uh one example of this change that i thought was quite sad two years ago the sierra club um, the famous American environmentalist organization um, removed their ability for local chapters to choose their own leaders. Right, Sierra Club was created at this time. Um, it yeah. was it was created in the in exactly this 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 time frame that I'm describing. And the reason no, they did well, I don't I don't understand that you you're saying that two years ago they did this they changed. So when were they? When did they come? When did they? Oh, that they were created in the 19th century. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, yeah. they were created like at the turn of the 19th century. It might have been yeah. a little bit yeah. after before, but John Muir, the famous environmentalist, friend of Teddy Roosevelt, like that. That's the era in which not you, um, not the Sierra you. Club was created, and they were originally created as one of these um, yeah. large-scale chapter-based um, organizations. Yeah. And two years ago. Um, as kind of like part of the whole great awakening stuff going on in America was part of that like internal purges of leftist organizations they decided to do this and they did it because if you have local leaders 
who are um, deciding local priorities, then you can't yeah. be sh like you, you can't control whether or not you have some local leaders who say true. actually we think racial justice doesn't matter as much as like saving some birds or whatever. And that's yeah. that's what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there was also another complaint. Of, or they of might, a local or they might, or they might say something. They might say something more outrageous, which is we actually we do believe in racial justice, but we're not sure that what you are saying will lead to racial justice, will lead to racial justice. Well, right. They could say that. Um, they could say that we're 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 involved in saving birds. This isn't like with the other organizations yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, stuff. Right. They could say, um, well, yeah, or yeah, I think yeah. the other thing that happened is there was an allegation of of like one of the local chapter leaders had been involved in in some sort of like sexual abuse <laughs> scandal. And that's another reason why this motive organization has failed, not because it leads to sexual abuse, but because in a harsh legal regime yeah. um, where a, the top is legally accountable for what happens at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You yeah. Exactly. Yeah. want to, you know, strangle people with HR so that you can yeah. avoid legal culpability. And that's yeah. an important yeah. change that's kind yeah, of absolutely. like... And, and this is, you see, the sorts of things you're talking about are also... If you read Ezra Klein's book, Why We Are Polarized, it's a very similar story. And he talks about the way in which politics constant is constantly pushed towards the national because the media are national. And that's essentially where people get their attention. So, um, so this is pushing away from local organization and towards the national. It's pushing away from local context and towards crude gestures which are instantly legible on the telly um uh, 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 he gives the example you may remember the name of the I think he was a senator it was in the senate it, i think the it, maybe i'm wrong is the state of the union address given in the senate or the house of representatives it's uh given to both at the same time yeah i know it, that but what chamber is it given to oh Anyway, it doesn't um, matter. My thing I, was I would assume it would be the House because there's more seats there. But yeah, I exactly. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. But you might, I think you'll remember this. I certainly remember this. And it was a Republican congressman in the middle of a, an Obama State of the Union address, and he said, you lie. Hmm. And it was pretty outrageous. And it was certainly seen as a breach of, tra of, of tradition. And the guy picked up a couple of million dollars in donations almost immediately. Uh, because everyone saw it and they thought, good, let's, we want more of that. So tremendously corrosive of both traditions, uh, of, of local context, and, and it's also, this is happening at a, national, at a national level. So when you mention the Great Awakening, uh, that's, I'm thinking that may well be an important part of this, of this development. Yeah, I mean, the transition away is, is, it precedes the Great Awakening, but I think the Great Awakening is actually a product of, of, in some ways, of this change that we're talking about. This yeah, transition yeah. from the world of self-organization to the world of bureaucratic management. Yeah. And the reason I say that, I, I have a piece about this. Um, I could send it to you when this is all done. It's, do. it's, it's called do. um, Honor, Dignity, and Victimhood, Two or Three Centuries of American Political Culture. Mm -hmm. And it starts with an observation um, by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning in their article on what they call microaggressions and moral cultures. I believe they turned it into a book afterwards. And they kind of make the the argument that somewhere in the mid-20th century or in the late 20th century, early 21st century, there was a change in the default, what they call moral culture, of like what what is held up as good moral behavior and in interpersonal relations in the like 
much distant past that had been about honor and slice to honor. That's how you regulated it. Starting in the mid-1900s, going through the 20th century, they talk about dignity being the, the thing that people want to preserve. And if you think about something like the American Civil Rights Movement, a lot of it was about convincing like black leaders, convincing black people that they have dignity and can stand up and need to be considered as equals. And that's why you'd come, you know, wearing church clothes and stuff on the march. Yeah. But in the, the late 21st century, you see a move to the moral person is seen to be the person who is the victim in the situation. Victimhood confers moral authority. Um, and my speculation is why does this happen? Why does victimhood become um, such a key part of the way we think about politics today and also about like social action? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, we have bureaucracies. Because when your job is to convince management to do something for you, the way that you do this is by demonstrating to those decision makers far above you that you are a victim in need of their aid. That you no. and your cause needs them to intervene and fix this problem. No. And if you look at like the classic examples of kind of like woke agitation, for example, on like college campuses um, in America. This is, this is entirely what it is. It's not like, a, say, the old civil rights movement where we're going to actually like force the Montgomery bus system to concede to our demands by denying them money and doing all these boycotts. It's much more of a no, no. We're going to appeal to university authorities. Yeah. We're going to create such a ruckus and show that we are in moral need that they'll be shamed or otherwise like morally impelled to act on our side and change well, well, the rules. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think the real, the real world force here is uh, what is euphemistically called in management meetings reputational risk. Uh, yeah. That is, I mean, there's some legal liability questions. It, it, it's not. I, I think the shaming is a, to use economic jargon, it's an intermediate good. It's not the. It, the, 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 you, you do the shaming and then you start the campaign. I mean, there are kind of campaigns of boycotting, but one of the things I was thought you were going to say about the boycotting is that what, if one boycotts the buses, you suffer a lot. The but You're trying to get the buses to suffer, but you're suffering a great deal yourself. Um, now, what's happening in most woke culture is that there's the shaming move but then there's the mobilization around the shaming to organize other people, essentially other people to do the boycotts um, and the collectivism and and, and, uh, and and all that sort of stuff. And I suppose my way of looking at it is, is very, it's pretty similar as you can hear. Um, but I, I reduce all this to a single word, which is legibility. So mm. you're, uh, or to use a nice term, uh, which has been used to discuss this from cybersecurity uh, attack surfaces. So what management will do? So so you look for attack services surfaces in your opponent's speech, and that's easy. Usually, you will have, someone will have said something like, "Surely we can agree that dot dot dot," and then a point will be put with particular clarity, and then you can say, "Oh well, you're." And then you can work on misrepresenting that. Um, so, uh, so you're you're trying to exploit attack surfaces, and by the same token, the managers then try to uh, harden the attack surfaces. 
So I was asked to do some interviewing. I'll get it. I'll see if I can get it up while I'm speaking. I was asked to do some interviewing uh, of students going to Monash University. Um, let's see if we can get it up. And I got a list of things that, um, and then I got a list of things that I must avoid when I, during the interview, protected attributes. These are the protected attributes. Age, breastfeeding, career status, disability, employment activity, gender identity, industrial activity, lawful sexual activity. Apparently I can ask about unlawful sexual activity. Marital status, parental status, personal association, physical features, political belief of activity, pregnancy or potential pregnancy, race, religious belief or activity of activity, sex, sexual harassment and sexual orientation. Now let's say some of those issues I thought were important for campus life and I, the, the example I often use is breastfeeding. Let's say I wanted to talk to a candidate. I'm, I'm not intending to discriminate against her. I'm thinking, all right, well, you've got a baby and you intend to breastfeed it. Let's talk about how you want to manage that. That would be a pretty legitimate thing to do. And if the university was interested in what it is, is kind of implying it's interested in, which is fairness to such a person, then they would want those conversations to take place. What they are concerned about is, their, is the capacity of those conversations to be misrepresented. And so they tell them to disappear. They just instruct things to no longer exist. Uh, they go into a world of make, a make-believe on all of those things. Um, and so well, anyway, so it's- do that, yeah, yeah. they have to create an entire like separate bureaucracy to, to even just yeah. manage that process. Right. And yeah. so that's like um like part of my general view of of how we're being socialized and what's kind of wrong is that it's not just that like so some conservatives in America will be like, oh, we have this like onerous federal government that's like going at everyone people's lives. Yeah. Um but I think probably a, a more important development from the perspective of the average citizen is the creation of like advanced HR bureaucracies and other corporate rules where your day to day behavior is being decided by somebody in a room very far away yeah and yeah. that's that's essentially like you if, if uh like to, to give another analogy you know i i think alexis tolkos washington america is, is is a really good look at kind of the old system right and he was very perceptive in how it worked and he said were, one of the reasons that americans follow laws even though they're not bound up in like you know tradition the way that it was in europe yeah. is that they feel like they helped create them yeah they feel like they had some say in how how things work. Good. And if you are a just a modern citizen in a Western liberal democracy today, you rarely feel that way. Neither yep. about the actual laws that govern you, but also just like the more regular, you know, terms of service for the social media you use, the yep. Yep. like HR rules for the corporations which hire you or the university you're in. You're ensnared yep. in all these systems that you don't really have any agency over. It's very natural yeah, exactly. in this environment exactly. yeah. for you to yeah. feel like a victim. Yeah. And really becoming a victim is the only way to change things in this environment, which is why yeah. that becomes so core to our politics on both sides, yeah. not just the left, but also the right. Um, yeah, well, the right is the great yeah, yeah, yeah. Match right. Right. Well, the past was all about no, 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 no. We are agents. We are people with dignity. We are people who are masters yeah. of our fate. We're going to stand yeah. up to yeah. that. Yeah, a yeah. lot of dysfunction yeah. in the modern world is people who 
do not feel like masters of their fate and their perception is accurate. They're not really. Most yep, of the things yep. that decide their daily life are are beyond their scope of control. So, um, yeah, okay. So I want to, I mean, I think this is very, very a very rich vein of thinking and I want to, in, I want to introduce the way I got into it, which is, is, is a bit more, a bit more ideologically stripped down, I suppose. I'm, you, you described yourself earlier. You didn't describe yourself as a conservative, but you did describe yourself as interested in conservative thought. Um, I personally describe myself as a conservative liberal social democrat, so work that out. Um, but what I mean by that is that each of these great traditions has something to say, and if you find yourself offending too egregiously against any of them, you should be paying careful attention to what it has to say to you. Um, but I guess my way of looking for solutions is, it's not consciously centrist, but it's consciously anti-ideological. I take mm-hmm. ideological thinkers and, tradi- and conservatism and liberalism and social democracy very seriously, but I don't want to, so- I don't want to come up with a solution which I then have to say to, I mean, one of the things that irritates me, I, if I have to say where I was on the political spectrum, I would say somewhere to the left of, or somewhere to the left of center in terms of the policies I want to suggest more strongly to the left in terms of my sympathies, but then lots of quite right-wing people would say that as well. So that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, um, uh, uh, that, that doesn't, that, that doesn't say very much. Um, so I, so I hunt around for things that I can describe in a neutral way and then compare with what we're doing. So that's how I come to this idea that uh, the people around the various people around the world saying citizen juries, representation by lot is an important is an, you know is, is, a, is a, a hack, an idea whose time has come this we can do great things with that. I agree with that, but I see it much more in a way that is much more. There's a much heavier intellectual architectonic, which is that every democracy is a three-legged stool. There are aspects of direct democracy in Athens; it was the assembly. In our system, it is voting. Every democracy has two different kinds of representation, and boy, are they different kinds of representation! Representation by competition and election. Which we've completely maxed out on, and uh, and and therefore have made this thing an, a toxic mess, and then representation by sa- by sampling and cooperation, which we all have in jur- which all English speaking countries have in juries. Um, so, the reason I mention this now is not only because I think this is an interesting thing to talk about, but because you talked about people seeing. That they that the law that they are involved in these laws, and so then they become invested. And I will send you. I, I can't put this. I can't put the whole thing up on in the show notes because um, it's not yet released. But there's a documentary coming out on a citizen jury run in Michigan during COVID, and it is sure. it is completely extraordinary because what you see it is thirty randomly selected people, and you see. People, you don't see any people who are incredibly. There are no woke activists, but there are certainly people who are sympathetic to woke ideas. And you have uh, vaccine skeptics and anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and 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 you know to give you an idea, 
in one of the discussions, one of, a number of the women say, "Well, if we are going to, uh, we need we need the government to pay us money because we can't be employed during this time, and we think it is fair to give more money to to, to look after children as well as adults." And this guy, one of the one of the guys on the right, says, "Well, you chose to have the kids. You're personally responsible for the kids." Well, as you can imagine, there's a fair bit of hefty disagreement around this point. Now, so so it's not all lovey-dovey by any means, and it isn't that this method produces fond agreement. Although it does produce far more changes of opinion than than the system we have. But what is completely astonishing about it is, the firstly, the the ownership of it. And secondly, that through this process, I, I sound like Breen Brown, I think is her name, the woman who's promoted by Oprah Winfrey on, that through this process of vulnerability, the right winger says to the left winger, well, I believe this. And the left winger says, well, I don't agree with you, but I do respect, I can sort of see what you're saying and I respect you as a person. And this, and they exchange this kind of respect. And at the end of this documentary, they're all in tears with how much they love each other, particularly across the ideological aisle. It's completely extraordinary. Um, so so this is this speaks... I'm, I'm, I've now said two things. One is this point about uh, the, the, the social and political utility of being involved so everyone does own these things, including if they disagree with them. And then there's this more powerful point that... It's actually an extraordinary form of bonding, um, and it's almost because we are still living through the history of that bonding that these democracies that we have, certainly yours, have stayed together at all, really, it seems to me. Do you feel like the random representation, for lack of a better word, is scalable? Yes, yes. And it's scalable in a similar kind of way. Um so I'll send you, I've, I've written a, something on this. Firstly, it's scalable in exactly the same way that elections are scalable. That is, if you want to have a citizen assembly to discuss what goes on in San Diego, you get 50 random people from San Diego and you stick them in a room and you, you get them to meet however often you want them to meet and you find out what they think. If you want to know how to do that for America, you do exactly the same thing and you have to spend more money and you probably should have... 150 people or something like that and there are some uh there are some um uh, you, you know there are some different dynamics because of scale but those things can be managed the point is these are chosen to to represent us so in that sense it scales it, it there's absolutely no problem with scaling um it scales in precisely the same way that elections scale um anyway you might i i, I think you may not be fully happy with that so you better test me out on it um, no, I'm not. I, in theory, I like it. Uh, and I think that if you can't have the full body of the people, having a random <laughs> selection in many ways is a better representation than, than an elected representation, right? And I think it would, as you said, give people more feeling of ownership over it if normal yeah. people, yeah, you know, normal. Yeah, were were involved in in various parts. Um, my questions are all just: oh, how well can you get this to to? I mean, my honest answer is: I don't think elections scale particularly well. Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't. They don't. Well, you know, and as much as, as they scale through national networks of media, that's how they scale. Basically, 
Yeah. I like they, it, it's in the 19th century version, as we were talking about, they also had elections back then and it was very organized in this sort of bottom up, you yeah. know, yeah. like large scale associational network that I think worked a little bit better. Yeah, I um, think so. But yeah. you, at the end of the day, part of the problem is just when you're making decisions for 300 million people or whatever, um, it's always going to be difficult to have all 300 million of those people feel like, or even the majority of them, feel yeah. like they have a meaningful thing to say in, in, in those decisions. So I think part of the answer yeah. has yeah. to be yeah. thinking very seriously about yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, where I can agree. we devolve issues to a lower level and where yeah, can we have yeah. things not be centralized. Like that, that was one of the other interesting observations that one of these, uh, I think it was James Bryce, who was the English ambassador to America for for. Um, the better part of a decade back in the 1890s and wrote several books about American politics and stuff. He makes the observation that one of the good things about this like vast swarm of associations that Americans have is that it allows individuals across the country um, he, to essentially says to be, you know, big fish in their own pond. Everybody, like there's so many different places where one's ambitions can be fulfilled yep. or one could climb yep. up a little yep. local hierarchy that yep. you have a lot less uh, conflict. And so when I look at America, when I look at, say, you know, Ezra Klein's polarizing, whatever, I think one of the big, one of the real problems with nationalizing everything is nope. that you yeah. actually reduce the number of, like, hierarchies ambitious people can climb up. Absolutely and right. This makes this is a, a much, much more bit like, bishops. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Patrick Deneen makes, makes this sort of point. Um, you know, the idea that he asks is, students where are they going to end up and how many of them are going to end up going back to their small the small city they came from and becoming respected respectable pillars of that community and the answer is well that's yes a few might but that's not seen to be that's not valued very much uh anymore well, and to be fair to america like the united states is in a much better position than many other countries in this regard like you know if you're taking if your comparison point is something like say england there's like one city where everyone goes to one and where all the one, elite all the one industries city, one city and one government one city yes. one government one chamber one city one government one chamber one big cock up basically so that well, i couldn't well, agree and, and not just not just the government either right because it's also the financial center and the media center and all the elites are very yeah. incestuous they're all you know yeah. whereas yeah. in america yeah yeah, yeah. you know it, it matters that our media elite live in a different city for our political elite who live in a different city yeah. from our tech elite you know, yeah. who live in a different city for yeah. our oil elites. And yeah. each yeah. one yeah. has this kind of a separate hierarchy arranged around each one. And that that's, I think, a very good thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah American life has become more concentrated over the last 50 years, but it's still better off than, than many other countries. Yeah. And I think that's one of our, like, national saving graces. Yeah. Um, so, so let's just, I, I might just persevere with this because, of course, when you say does it scale that, gets me to say that I think it would work at the federal level, which I do. But of course, I see it working in a precisely the sort of constitutional, the nested constitutional arrangement that you have. And in that context, let's say, just as a thought experiment, that we rewrite the American constitution and just as most, I think most or all state gov state constitutions are little replicas of the federal constitution, their congressional systems, not parliamentary systems and so on. Let's say that each of these levels, local government, state government and federal government is run in this way. I think that the dynamics between these governments will be very different because in electoral, demo electoral democracy, 
is about the for the participants is about the conquest of power, and of course the thinking among the founding fathers and embedded in the American Constitution is different centers of power, so different centers of power can compete with one another, and that's a kind of second best uh, arrangement to having having governments that really try and look after us. Uh, they're looking after themselves in competing with one another. Now, if you if you think, let's say the question is, who should run disaster relief? I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Hurricane Katrina, but I don't know why, except that it was such a disaster. But um, now, if that is if that question is litigated in the current constitutional arrangement, it will be litigated between careerist politicians seeking to claim power and using arguments to do so, often by clearly misrepresenting those people who disagree with them. That's the currency of the game. Now, if you have a bunch of Mr. Smiths come to Washington and Mrs. Smiths come to Washington, and it's 150 of them or 250 of them, they're not going to have that attitude at all. They're there for a year or two, um, and they're trying to come up with the best answer they can come up with based on their own experience, based on what people say to them, and based on what they hear, they're, they're actually going to be trying to get the right answer. And I think that that's very far from the minds of politicians. And I say that with some respect for them. Well, well, I, well, I, I suppose I'm probably a lot more cynical than you on this. I think that if, <laughs> if, if we imagine this, uh, if, if this actually happened, as you said, and yep. the... So I, I, I'll say this, like the difference between a jury... And a deliberative body is that a jury convenes in secret. Um, it's purposely isolated from the outside world yeah. in ways yeah. that are designed to help it, you know, reach a decision. Yeah. Um, if you had a deliberative body on this format, everyone would know who these 150 people are. Um, there would be intense scrutiny on them from journalists, from lobbyists, <laughs> companies, from political well, parties. They might, they might do what the Ways and Means Committee did until 20 years ago, which is to meet confidentially and then to have public sessions and private sessions. Well, I don't even think it's the matter of, it, it's a matter of like, just knowing who they are, right? I mean, yeah. so for yeah. example, yeah, um, if you're trying to decide, okay, does Lockheed Martin or Boeing get this defense contract, um, I think you would have a lot of pressure on these people from those companies, along with like financial inducements that, oh yeah, you know, like you work so, like people who work so hard for us, we might hire them. When this is all done and said, yeah. Well, or, you, you, even you, you, you criminalize, you criminalize those things. You criminalize those things. I'm not suggesting you can get rid of those. Would you things. criminalize it? Would you criminalize people who who? Let's say, let's say I, I'm chosen as one of these yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and then after it's done, um, I became a national figure by being a part oh, of this body. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and then I say, okay, now that I'm a national figure, I can run for election. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of your issue is that like by by putting them up at the national level, all of a sudden this group of formerly random people yep. will now be political media corporate figures that they wouldn't have been otherwise. Well, and well, that- well, sure. Okay, okay. Slow down a bit. Firstly, I completely agree with you that that's a problem. I completely agree with you that 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 some people would do that. I'm very disappointed to to hear Tanner that that would be you, but I'm <laughs> sure that some people would do it. Um, I think that those people would be a fairly small number, uh, but yes, some people would do it. And um, 
there would be, I think, pretty strong pressure from within the group that that was a that this was not being very helpful. Um, and what I would do about it, and I probably shouldn't have said, I, I mean, I don't really criminalizing it. There, there are some things you would criminalize, taking money for votes and a bunch of things like that. But I'm not really putting a lot of faith in that. What I would do is I would put these questions in the hands of that chamber. And I would say, yeah, these are issues and that chamber should discuss them and make recommendations. And then the the chamber that comes after them can consider those things and act on them if it agrees with what has been put to it. So often in these things, you have a, a, a blind break between two bodies. One proposes and the other disposes. And that the, the, the idea behind that is the same idea as when Olympic judges are voting on the diving and the two extra and the outliers on at the top and the bottom get thrown away and it means that all the judges are trying to guess what the other judge it it creates an incentive to try to cooperate to try to uh, to to work with others uh, so I think that that I think yeah the numbers would be small it would clearly be a problem and I think that the body as it generated its traditions would be able to handle it pretty well. And I will mention one other thing. When you talked about scaling, the other thing I wanted to say, and this is something where I uh, i don't know anyone else who's keen on sortition who has talked about this, but um, there is a method of merit selection, which I'm extremely fond of. And I call it decompetitive merit selection. It was used in Venice and it's used, it was used, I first discovered it because it was used in a citizen large citizen jury in Adelaide in Australia and the way it works is you don't hold an election in which people in in which people campaign you randomly select a group of electors and then you seclude them and they deliberate and they work out who they want to who they choose as meritorious for a particular thing now in fact the electoral college is a sort of bastardized version of that. And I think they may have got the idea from Venice. Uh, the problem with the electoral college is that the electors are elected. And so you, uh, the electors are not randomized, but their idea was that people would meet and discuss who to appoint. And, the, and, that, and then you would end up with a leader who was a national figure and not a divisive figure. And it, it didn't work out as they found out on the third time they picked a president, they had to have 38 votes, I think before they came up with Thomas Jefferson. So that wasn't a big success. But that's a powerful way of, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very abstract bureaucratic or a very abstract procedural rule, but it's trying to address some of the things you were talking about earlier and in your article about virtue, because you're choosing, you're not choosing people on the basis of how, how they can put stuff over on people, how well they campaign, how well they promise things to people. You're selecting people who other people feel have made uh, or are likely to make a powerful and and a I would imagine socially uh, socially directed contribution. And and I think I one parallel or one line that could possibly be drawn between you know what the two systems both of you are discussing is that you know for me one of the one aspect of political office is not just that it enables the powerful to become more powerful, but it's a way in a sense of regulating the influence of people who are already 
be out there in the community, you know, exercising some form of influence or, or another, right? So, I mean, I always sort of think if you want to limit Bill Gates's ability to, uh, you know, influence legislation, one great solution would be to elect him to the Senate, you know, for, for that would put a bunch of restrictions on him that he could no longer, you know, kind of do, right? So it's sort of like, okay, so now looking at the system in the 19th century, you had all these local communities and it's like, well, you got the big fish in that community and he joins the local chapter of whatever it is, the Elks Lodge and, and so forth and so on. And that, that puts him in a system. Yeah. 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 It's got to follow the rules of order. He's got to do, you know, whatever it is. There's yeah. someone mm-hmm. taking yeah. it to people who can challenge him in a way that's sort of constructive. And then you build this up to this larger um, body. So I, I think, you know, Nicholas, you talk about how these bodies would develop traditions yeah. um, that would sort of start to regulate people's behavior inside. of the Exactly. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's very there's, important. There's a strong parallel there at least from my perspective, that yeah, could, be, yeah. could be used to sort of support the idea. Um, I also kind of like the idea of what you said earlier, Tanner, about how people just had to build their own institutions, you know, right at the beginning, yeah. the pioneer days. And in a way, it's kind of what you're asking a jury to do. It's like, all right, guys, uh, we need you to solve, we need you to essentially create a kind of temporary committee for how we're going to solve this particular problem. And we're not going to, we're going to give you some rules, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. You guys have just got to do it yourselves. And uh, I think that in some senses, it can be seen as a way of recreating some of the conditions that you were talking about. Um, It's really interesting to look at these two things side by side. I do also think one question I would have, I guess, and maybe this would, is going a bit beyond the scope of our conversation. Um, is the degree to which an institution where if it's purely democratically, i.e., not democratically, but uh, like one of these chapters, which is being governed by elections, there's presumably some membership criteria involved too. I mean, you can't, not everyone can join the Elk Society or whatever it is, uh, or the, the Freemasons. I, these days, I don't know. Um, but uh, I think that one of the criticisms that we yeah, saw one of, the, one of the aspects is ex- ex- exclusivity. Many of and that problem is that the Sierra Club maybe faced was that you know we're living in the 21st century where you like you are saying we are kind of the victims of bureaucracies and that's how you kind of gain some credibility. But we also have this Supreme Court that we always kind of expect to solve political problems for us, um, and it all kind of is related to this idea that yeah. Maybe there was some sort of misbehavior down in this local Sierra Club chapter. How can we, how can we solve that problem? That if if it is truly done by you know organized by elected elections, how can we solve that problem of that minority interest being excluded through that process? Whether it's woke interest or something much less, uh, um, much less you know I, I don't know contentious. Contentious. We want to like do we want to save this kind of bird because we really like this bird, whereas everyone wants to focus on these other birds, um, uh, maybe these, something like the jury can address some of these concerns. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But um, just a couple of thoughts I had listening to this conversation. I think juries are very well placed to solve the problem of exclusion or inclusion. Um, I think as far as associational life, associational life goes, um, I, I, I don't think exclusion and inclusion is that big of a deal because you always have the ability to create your own or to have one that's more specific, more defined. I yeah. think it's very hard. Like, for example, with the Sierra Club, as an example, um, it's obviously can only ever be an organization for environmentalists. Like, if, it's, if everyone's included in it, then it's not, it no longer serves its purpose of yeah. environmental, yeah. you know. Yeah. The important point. Um, 
And I think that's true for a lot of social clubs as well, or churches or, you know, other things like that. Like, like they, they often yeah. have like yeah. the, part of yeah. the word ethnic club. That was a very common one. It was people from certain yeah. ethnicities. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but on the question of the federal like chamber, yeah. I think probably where my perspective has the biggest gap from yours is that I don't know how much procedural fixes can fix, I think, kind of some fundamental issues. You know, earlier on in this podcast, in the very beginning, you called the United States an empire. And yeah. when you have imperial stakes, yeah. um, at some level, I don't think you're going to be able to have imperial stakes a question without having like just very harsh, self-interested power games involved. Because there's just too much money, too much world affairs, too many people at, at issue. One of the benefits of having something a little bit lower down is that the stakes, while important to individuals, like the the ability to profit from it or what have you, is just like far reduced. Um, and so I think it's very, very, very difficult to fit, create like a procedural fix to like making. I mean, people should try. Like, and, and no. in terms of this particular proposal. In the American system, I mean, the way to try it would be amend some state constitutions, see if it works out very well for them. And if it yep. does, yep. you yep. can expand yep. it. That's how most uh, yep. like yep. the progressive movement began in Wisconsin with the Wisconsin idea. The American federal constitution began with a series of state constitutions modeled on the same lines. You know, that, that's yep. how the American government tends to work. So I would like to see the experiment run and see how it works. My skepticism is just that I don't know how much we can use procedural fixes, especially governmental ones, when... The problem is just as much a problem in say, the corporate world or and when you still have things like a giant military that like, stretches across the earth, when you still have to like have a Federal Reserve that decides economic policy, that decides the entire globe's economic future. Yeah, no, exactly. It's true, those, that, it, yeah, exactly. Go on, very, sorry. very hard, I think, to to find a procedural fix that will necessarily ameliorate, you know, vicious fighting over what yeah. it ends up doing one way or the other. Okay. Well, let me respond to that. Because um, I, I guess I would say I don't see it as a procedural fix. I'd see it as a procedural experiment in the way that you're yeah. suggesting. Um, also, uh, I wrote down as you put uh, as you were talking a procedural balm. So I'm quite happy for this thing to start with no power whatsoever, and we can have a look at it. One of the things that, um, and I have a very sneaky power to give it the very first power I give it, and I would hope that it might claim this power in the way that it would challenge other chambers to give it this power. In other words, it would just make requests. And here's the power. If the People's Chamber disagrees with the vote of one of the other two chambers, it, in the first instance, requests, and if I can get this somehow written into the rules, it demands there be a secret ballot of that chamber on the same issue. Because if I look at the experience of my own country and the experience of Great Britain, there are two great acts of elite vandalism that has taken place against the consciences of the elite itself. You would be more familiar with Brexit, uh, but if Brexit, if a people, I've got good evidence that if you have a citizen deliberation, you get a swing 
away from Brexit from about 52-48, which is the vote for Brexit, to about 60-40 against. Um, and it's quite obvious that the probably... Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not nearly as close to British politics as I am to Australian politics, but I would think that in terms of what members of the, of the House of Commons thought, I'd be very surprised if more than 25% thought it was a good idea. And yet they could be corralled into doing this by various party structures. And in Australia, you had, oh dear, um, is, is he still being recorded? Okay, well, I'll press on. Uh, Tanner, we can't hear you. I'll actually continue this and hope that it can, can be edited. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. We can't see you. But I'll just finish this. I'll finish this and then maybe we try it. We, 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 dial, we get you to dial in again and then we wrap up. Um, so now I'm going to try and... Oh, there you are. You're back. Um, uh, in Australia, we... Um, abolished carbon pricing. We had one of the best carbon pricing regimes in the world. The conservative, in, in our, it will amuse Americans to know that our conservative party is called the Liberal Party. And our Liberal Party got into power with a promise to abolish this, uh, this um, uh, tax. And as a result, Australians have to pay $12 billion more in tax in other taxes because we got rid of that. Um, and it was, it was harebrained. And the um, I would. I'm very confident that a majority of the governing party. Uh, the, it was unanimous among the other parties that this was a terrible idea, and I would imagine a majority of the governing party, the, the members of it, thought it was a bad idea, and it happened. So that's that's um, so, so so that's not a fix of much. It's a, it's a it's a patch. It's an experiment, and it and my my argument is. It's hard for me to believe that this does any harm. Since we're so obsessed with public opinion, this shows you not the opinion of the public, but the considered opinion of the public. That's something that, as a matter of information, is a valuable thing. Um, and I think it can. It has all sorts of qualities which of sanity, which I think it can contribute. So, yes, it's not going to solve all these problems. Um, and I think, and, and, and on the other side, it's easy for you to say that the sorts of things you're talking about would address deeper cultural problems. And I think I agree with you about that. I just don't know how to bring it about. Um, well, right. So, right. Yeah. So, 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 that so, was so, actually my question too, just about the, how is it we actually get the, uh, it's, it's the procedural bone yeah. is yep. it's not a, uh, a, a bad plan, but actually convincing, you know, various people to do it is, is, Quite difficult. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I just want to find. I just want to find, if uh, Tanner find me a billionaire. Get, he can give me ten million American dollars. I'll set it up. It has no. I don't want it to have any power initially, anyway. So we'll just make. We'll just do it the American way, which is we'll have to do it ourselves. We won't ask the government. Um, people, your country is much better at doing that than anywhere else in the world, for better and for worse. Uh, so there we are. We've got a solution. You're going to help me out. Mm. That's that's not the, the actually that is a kind of uh, interesting path for it is create it through private funds, fund it for a few years, have it be purely advisory. Only then, way you can do it. Only way you'll spend the re you'll I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life talking if, uh, rather than doing if it, if it isn't done that way. Hmm. Very uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting. So we'll see if we All can right. find you the billionaire. 
Well, that you find me the billionaire. We've got an agreement here. We I, I introduced this talk, this this uh, podcast, saying I thought we had some some agreements, some some creative tension. I think we've demonstrated that. You've just got to find me ten million dollars a year for three years, and and uh, you will have done not something not just for your great country, the great republic, but for the world. And in the meantime, we'll sort of go on with this podcast. But thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Tanner.